We are in Matthew 11. The King's Invitation is the text. Let's open our Bibles there, if you would. If you're new to us, we're moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of the Kingdom is what we've entitled it. And we're at a beautiful section where Jesus gives a very touching invitation to come to him. So why don't you, uh, once you have the text, if you're able to stand with us, why don't you stand to your feet for the reading of the Word of God, Matthew 11, picking it up at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this, wa- this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things, Matthew eleven twenty seven, have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, in honor of this text, you can have a seat, because I want to take the burden off of you (laughs) while I pray. And while I pray, would you join me in prayer? To our mighty King, our beloved Messiah, our Savior, thank you that you are my King, our King, and you came down, Lord, and as you preached in various cities, you invited people to come just as they were with all the burdens and weights and exhaustions that life throws our way, and especially sometimes religious pressure that we face. And you invited the people simply to come, to come to you, to bring their burdens, to bring their struggles, and to lay them at your feet. And they could exchange their yoke for yours, which is a yoke that is easy and light, Your commandments are not burdensome, Lord, and there's been so much man-made religion that's put unnecessary yokes on people's shoulders, on their souls indeed, and we want to be people who are truly free in Christ. We want to balance that by knowing that this is not about easy believism or cheap grace. There is an expectation to live for the glory of God, but We do it by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, Lord, as we look at this beautiful invitation to all, anyone who would want to come, anyone who would hear your voice can come. And as believers, we can keep coming. Sometimes, honestly, Lord, we try to lay burdens at your feet and we take them back and then we lay them down. And I think in a fresh way, we can also hear this invitation for the believer to know that God daily bears our burden. And it's it's a remarkable thing to know who you are, Lord, and that you invite your people to lay their burdens at your feet. Give them to me, you say. And that is an amazing love that you have for your people. And so I pray that whatever you want to speak today would come out, Lord, that 
you be pleased in the way the scriptures are both taught and acted upon for your glory. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say, amen. Amen. The king's invitation. So in verse 25, it reads this way in the New King James Version. At that time, and we'll talk about the time, uh, the timing in a moment, Jesus answered. The, the New King James actually says he answered. And what he answered is a dilemma about the cities that he had just reproached. If you look back in the context just for a second, Jesus in verse 20 of Matthew 11 began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done Notice, because they did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, that's a, those are uh, Gentile nations to the north of Galilee, which occurred in you, if, if they had occurred there, they would have repented long ago in the garments of repentance, sackcloth, and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable. There we have levels of judgment based upon accountability for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, Jesus at that time began a prayer, and this is the first recorded prayer in the Gospel of Matthew that we have in terms of what Jesus said to his Father. Earlier in Matthew 6, he taught the disciples how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, if you will. But here we have an insight into Jesus' prayer. And right after he reproached those cities for their unbelief and unrepentance, his prayer went this way. I thank you or praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide or conceal these things from the wise and intelligent, the learned, if you will, and did reveal them to babes or to infants or to children. Now, this particular idea of Jesus revealing and concealing truth has uh, given birth to a lot of different, what you might call theological perspectives. And one theological perspective would be more in the Reformed camp, and that would be under the guise of Calvinism or Reformed theology. And basically how this goes is that the only people who respond to the gospel have been sovereignly chosen by God ahead of time. And so those are the ones to whom God reveals himself and he conceals himself to others. But I will tell you, I don't hold that view, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. In the context, the concealing of the gospel is to the wise and intelligent, in quotes. You might want to mark that in your Bible. And we're going to ask the question, who are they? Because they're not getting the truth, but the others, the infants or the babes, are. Just for sake of just getting right to the point, the wise and intelligent in this setting, if I were to ask you to answer the test question, I think most of you could answer it. The wise and intelligent are the religious leaders of the day who are opposing Jesus at every turn. Later in a parable, he will indicate that they know who he is and they will not come to him. They think they are wise. Romans 1.22, a good cross-reference. Professing to be wise, they became 
fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made in the form of corruptible mankind and animals, etc. You can go back and read Romans chapter 1. So these are some things I want you to think about. Why would Jesus pronounce woes on unrepentant cities if this is all predetermined and you have no, there's no free will in any of this? Why pronounce woes for a lack of repentance? The words almost become, frankly, meaningless. Why would you pronounce woes on people who have no choice to repent? And why would you talk about levels of accountability? It'll be more tolerable for this group than for that group if there's no human responsibility whatsoever in the salvation equation. Amen? Now, I will tell you there's good people on both sides of this, good scholars on both sides, who would disagree on how, how all of this works. And there is a bit of a mystery in some of this as we read our Bibles, right? We see God's sovereignty. We see words like election and predestination. And then we see, you know, verses about man's free will, called to repent, called to believe, called to turn from sin. How do we make sense of it? There's, there's one particular view that might satisfy at least some of you, and that is that God is the, always the aggressor in the equation. None of us are coming unless the gospel gets preached and the Holy Spirit moves through gospel preaching, or God shows up in a dream or however he wants to reach you, but he's reaching out, but you have to respond. So while I would say God, I believe, is the aggressor in the equation, still the response from you and me is real. Let's not forget that at the very end of this text, there's a real invitation given. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. How do you qualify as the audience? All you have to be is exhausted and weary and heavy laden. Anybody uh, want to raise up your hand to that one? All right, you qualify. What would keep a certain group away is defined as the wise and intelligent. That is, as O'Donnell puts it in his commentary, if pride is your mother, God cannot be your father. Pride will keep you from the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus reproached his adopted home city, that would be Capernaum, and look at verse 23. He said, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. Now, Jesus picked up a prophecy written to the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14. And I think it's worth turning in your Bibles. We'll put the scripture up on the screen. Uh, but Isaiah chapter 14. Now, in the immediate context, the king of Babylon is being addressed. We can, you can think of Nebuchadnezzar, his pride up on his balcony. Look at the great Babylon that I have built. Look what I have done. And you know what God did to old Nebuchadnezzar, if you're a VeggieTales fan? He humbled him. It would appear for seven years. He, he acted like an animal. He was nuts. He was crazy. His hair grew out like he was a lead guitarist for an old 70s rock and roll band. I mean, it was crazy. And so here's the prophecy, and this is directly what Jesus seems to be alluding to. Notice, he's addressing the king on a sub-level. Many see Satan or Lucifer behind the prophecy. Your pomp, Isaiah 14, 11, and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. 
and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, the famous five I wills. I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, there are many who believe that Satan is behind the king of Babylon. Sometimes when you read prophecy in your Bible, there's a, an immediate recipient of the prophecy and then a kind of a sub-level of the prophecy. Not everybody agrees, but many see Satan himself behind the words given to the king of Babylon because of some of the language here. You can also write down Ezekiel 28, another prophecy many see towards uh, Lucifer. Now, I want you to turn to Luke 10. In Luke 10, there's a parallel passage. Luke sets Jesus's prayer after the return of the 70 that go out preaching. Matthew has it after the 12 go out, and Jesus has been preaching in the various cities. You want Luke chapter 10. And so I'm going to show you the parallel, and I want you to see an interesting context that kind of links to the idea of Satan's pride. Take a look. Luke 10 Look at verse 17. The 70 return with joy. And I would just say to you, if you're wondering about Matthew and uh, Luke's timing, it's probably more a thematic uh, timing here. The 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and, a scor and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, that phrase, well-pleasing, is in Jesus' prayer. It was well-pleasing to you to do things this way. Let's return to Matthew chapter 11, and let me make a few comments that I hope will bring some illumination. The mindset of the religious leadership of the day towards the apostles was that they were unschooled, unlearned men. They didn't go to the right schools. They, did, they weren't under the right rabbi. They didn't study in Jerusalem, etc. And they basically said, they're, they're from Galilee. They're fishermen. What do they know? But they had the greatest seminary training that one could ever have, three and a half years with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a pretty good education, wouldn't you say? And even in Acts chapter 4, they had taken note that these guys had been with Jesus, even though they knew they didn't have all the regular diplomas or degrees, if you will. The Pharisees looked down their nose at the apostles. They said they're like little infants. They don't know anything. We are the learned ones. We're the wise and intelligent ones. And what disqualified them from kingdom truth was one word, pride. If pride is your mother, 
God cannot be your father. Now, in a modern sense, we might say it this way. Someone thinks they're so smart, right? They're, they're on a website, and they think they've got the arguments that are going to put, you know, Christianity off to the side forever. And by the way, they've been trying the same arguments for 2,000 years. And while it's reasonable to wrestle with some of the arguments that people think they're so smart, they're going to live, they're going to die, and then the next group of them will come along, and God has no problem dealing with them. In Jesus' time, the wise and intelligent and prideful were the religious leaders of the day, and they were simply closed off to the truth of the Messiah. I will say, though, and, and many of you know this, that Nicodemus did come and others did come. There were some of them that did repent and trust in Christ. So it wasn't all of them. But those who even knew who he was in a later parable, this is the heir, let us kill him. Jesus is basically saying, you know who I am. And even after Jesus raised from the dead, as he promised, they had to pay off the guards to say the disciples stole the body. They were unwilling to repent. And I believe that one way to make sense of Jesus' words here is to see that those who will not repent will not get the revelation. The truth will not come to them because they won't believe it. If you flip over to Matthew 13, you look at the parable, the famous parable of the sower. Jesus says these very words. He's dealing with the proud and the religious leadership and why he speaks in parables. This is ahead of us, but just take a peek. In their case, Matthew 13, 14, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, let's say, here's the infants, spiritually speaking, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. If you look at verse 18, Jesus then explains the parable of the sower. And one thing that we do know, one of the uh, images that Jesus draws in this parable, he says the seed is the gospel or the kingdom message of the Messiah and the ground or the soil is the heart of men and women. And the seed gets thrown out on various soils, right? And one of the soils is a hard-packed soil and that seed doesn't penetrate that hard heart, so it just sits there. And what happens? The bird comes along and picks it off. And the birds are, represent Satan who has a role in this his pride got him booted out of heaven, and he loves to feed on the pride of unbelief. Here's how it works. I don't want to listen to that. Someone sits in a memorial service, a church service. I don't want to hear it. They close off their heart, and Satan comes, flies by, if you will, and snags what could have been planted in their heart. Satan has a role. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4, if you're taking notes, he blinds the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. But it doesn't mean that unbelievers don't have a part in that. There's spiritual uh, dimensions to this, of course. But here's the point. Pride keeps the seed from going in, and then Satan picks it off, if you will. So there are, there are different ways to see the angles 
of how salvation works and how, you know, God speaks to people. So you can see in the parable of the, the sower, some of these realities. I, I, I will resist preaching it for now, but I want you to turn to one more passage as a parallel, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it's, it's going to be several pages to your right. As you turn there, let me tell you what some scholars see in Jesus's words and invitation. They tie this to Jewish wisdom literature. Best way for us to get our arms around it is the wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is often personified, given personality in Proverbs, and it's something like this. Wisdom calls out in the streets and says something like this. Come to me, all you who are naive. Seek me and you will find me. Seek me and you'll find life. And some scholars believe that Jesus' words at least allude to wisdom literature. And some uh, cultic groups have actually, they believe that Jesus is actually in Proverbs chapter 8. I don't believe that. I don't hold that. I think you can push the image too far. But Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Colossians 2.3 puts it this way. In Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. So Jesus is wisdom ultimately personified. We've got to be careful with the Proverbs 8 stuff. But he calls to people. Wisdom embodied. Love embodied. God Dwelling among us, the ultimate wisdom calls out. The wise and intelligent won't come. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 1 as Paul picks up some of these themes of worldly wisdom contrasted with God's wisdom. For the word, 1 Corinthians 1.18, of the cross, the gospel message, if you will, is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Keep in mind Jesus' prayer. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's a wisdom of the world and there's a wisdom of God. For since in the wisdom of God, 21, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. There's, you can hear Jesus' prayer. It, 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 you were well pleased to do things this way. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. The religious leader said, he can't be the Messiah because Messiah doesn't die on a cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He can't be the Messiah. But they ignored clear scripture that said Messiah would bear the burden of our sin and take the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, which we'll get to in a moment. They wouldn't see it. So they, they denied him. They stumbled over Jesus. He'd, be, he'd become a rock of offense to them because they wouldn't accept it. They, they kind of blocked out the other scriptures that talked about the suffering servant. And it became a stumbling block, Jesus did. And to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, notice, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And what's your Bible say? And the wisdom of God. Now, if you skip down to the next chapter, Paul, again, speaking of the theme of wisdom, says these words, 
1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. There's your religious leadership of the day. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, so hidden from some, revealed to others, notice, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul will go on to talk about the spiritual man and the natural man. And he says the the natural man can't understand the things of the spirit because they're spiritually appraised or discerned and he won't accept them while the spiritual man will accept them. Back to Matthew chapter 11. So before we move on, let me just say that as Jesus prays the prayer and puts out the invitation, the ones that are excluded from this are the ones who believe they don't need it. They are self-sufficient. They don't need to come to Jesus because they won't come on his terms And I'll just say this to you. If you won't come on his terms, you won't come at all. You say, wow, that's a radical statement, isn't it? Yeah, and you're going to see such remarkable things that Jesus says about himself that it's amazing. And let me just say one more cross-reference. When Jesus is about to uh, enter into Jerusalem, he's on the donkey. He approaches the city and he cries over it. And he says these words, this is Luke 19, 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace or rest or shalom, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Luke 19, 42. In a hopeful sense, Jesus giving the invitation means it's not too late, even for the religious leadership of the day. And some of them did come, right? Who knows, even at this point, Uh, late moment, whether God might leave a blessing behind him. We read that last week in the book of Joel. Come, turn, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn while you can. And some of you have been reading through the Old Testament and you're like, what's wrong with these people? But you know what they do? When they get in trouble, they turn back to God. When everything is cool, then they just go their own way. I know none of you do that. I know none of us are guilty of doing that, right? So Jesus, as he prays, says, yes, Father, Matthew eleven twenty six. thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. Uh, scholars call this a Christological high point of the gospel of Matthew because of these following words. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, reminiscent of when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, the great commission. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Just pause for a second. That is a remarkable claim. And you got to just stop for a second and realize that when Jesus is making claims to be the singular way to God, to have all power authority, to be the judge of the living and the dead, to be the singular way to God, these are claims that divide people. A generic I believe in God, I'm a spiritual person, is fully acceptable in our culture. But Jesus says, all things, all authority in heaven and on earth, all judgment has been given to the Son. Now that is radical. 
And that would explain why Jesus is such a lightning rod, if you will, to, at least to some people, right? Because he's making radical, exclusive, powerful claims. He says, all things are at his feet. Right now, you say, well, how does that work out? Well, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, reigning. He's the king. He's going to return and fully bring in the kingdom, but he's reigning now. He's at the right hand, the position of power and authority, interceding for his people, but he is in that exalted spot. And the Father handed everything to him, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Here we have a little insight into the Trinity or the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice the unique, special relationship between Father and Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Maybe we could say fully knows him in the depths that exist in the Godhead. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. The Son is Jesus, of course. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus Christ is the revealer of the Father. Hear the words. If you've seen me, You've seen the Father, John 14, 9. John 1, 18 says the Son came to explain the Father. This is actually uh, in Greek where we get the word exegesis. When a pastor explains a passage of Scripture, Jesus is the exegesis of God. He's the revealer of God the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whatever I do, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I always do those things that please my Father. 1 John 2.23 has it this way. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. But if you have the Son, then you have the Father as well, and of course the Holy Spirit. That's why this prayer and these claims are powerfully remarkable. Jesus is not claiming to be just one of many prophets. He is not claiming just to be a good moral teacher. He is claiming that all authority and all things sit at his feet. That is your savior. That is your king. That is our God. That is the message of the kingdom. Jesus is the king how do we get saved? We receive him, we believe in him, we follow him, and we trust in him for our salvation. He is the supreme authority in the universe, and his authority makes this invitation even more amazing. Take a look. Come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He doesn't say, come to God, although he could have said it. He says, come to me. Why? Because he is God. Come to me all, so this includes everybody, all of you who labor or who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, get out of here. He doesn't say, you know, I'm only going to accept, you know, these, these certain people with these qualifications. He just says, look, you qualify if you're tired. If you feel like the weight of life and your sin has weighed you down, and, and look, here's the specific image here, and I know we could all talk about, and, and I'll talk a little bit about our anxiety, and we deal with stress and anxiety, and it piles on our shoulders, and there's no doubt that Jesus is inviting us as believers to give that to him and keep giving it to him. But in the immediate setting here, you know what the shoulder burden is? It's our sin. 
It's our guilt. It's the weight of sin on our shoulders, which only can be remedied in trusting in the king who died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. Amen? Otherwise, you get to carry it. And you all know what it feels like, for those of you who maybe came to Jesus later in life, you all know what it feels like to carry it. Guilt is a heavy load. And Jesus says, come, the the idea is come now. Don't wait. Come to me. And you qualify if you're weighed down. Jesus said to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, 4, the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, Matthew 23, 4. But they themselves are unwilling to move with so much of, as a finger. They won't even lift a finger. They tell you what to do, but they won't even lift a finger to do it themselves. Jesus will say, yes, they sit in the chair of Moses, so listen to what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't do what they preach. They tie up heavy loads. People in that day had so much man-made tradition added to their shoulders that they could barely move on a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was supposed to speak of worship and resting in God. In the next section ahead, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus will say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he will give an insight into Sabbath keeping that has to do with much more freedom than the scribes and Pharisees would allow. And the people were weighted down. Can you feel it? Another man-made tradition. Another, another, another. And no one could move. No one could light a fire. No one could do anything on a Sabbath day. And And the people were frozen under religious legalism. And not much has changed. Because if you've grown up in a certain system where man-made rules were added to the word of God, and today they're all over the landscape, brothers and sisters, think this way. Yes, there are atheists and agnostics and they're out there. But many, many people are under the yoke of religious man-made legalism. If you wear that dress, you're going to hell. This is what people were told in evangelical churches. Wear lipstick, you're going to hell. If you dance, you're going to hell. You go to a movie, you're going to hell. And, and, and it was man, 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 man. And I bet you that those same people that were preaching that stuff were probably watching the movies they told you not to go to. And probably dancing in the dark somewhere. <laughs> Just kidding, I have no idea. But anyway, the point is, Jesus came to deliver the people of his day from unnecessary religious burdens. And my prayer for you is that you would be delivered from unnecessary religious burdens. If Jesus Christ came to set us free, why are we walking around like we're just under the weight of everything? That's not the gospel. Now, the gospel's also not cheap grace. It's not you can do whatever you want because the more you sin, the more grace you're going to get. Paul says, God forbid that you would ever do that. You don't use grace as an excuse for sin, but at the same time, you celebrate grace every day because the gospel makes us free. And Jesus says, look, don't worry about what they've been saying. You come to me. You come now. They're not going to listen. They're blind guides leading the blind. But if your soul is hurting, 
If you're weary and burdened, if, as Bonnard has it, come to me, all you who are fatigued and overwhelmed, Barclay renders it, come to me, all you who are exhausted and weighted down beneath your burdens. All people experiencing tough times are invited to Jesus. You bring it all to me. What a savior. What a king. When's the last time you said to someone, bring me all your burdens and dump them on me? Come on. Let's get real. Most of us would prefer not to. Yet we're called to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We live the gospel as we enter into other people's pain, just like Jesus is the gospel and entered into our pain. And oh, how I need the fruits of the Spirit to even think that way, because I'd rather avoid it. Let someone else deal with it. Let someone else clean up that mess. I don't want it. But the truth is that Jesus says, bring it. Bring it all to me. Lay it right here. And on the cross, oh, here's where it is. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant and says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. It reads this way. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for my peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Do you see it? He is the gospel. He is his own message. He says, you come to me. Bring it all. Bring all the confusion, all the misunderstandings, all the unnecessary weights that you put on your own shoulders. Bring them. Back up the dump truck and dump it. And leave it. Because that's why I came. That's why I died on that awful cross. That's why I suffered for you. I'm the shepherd and guardian of your soul. He substituted himself because all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. What a weight to carry. What a king we follow. Do you hear the king's invitation? Come. Are you tired? Are you weary? Come. Are you tired of the plastic smile and trying to be good enough and smart enough and all that stuff? Come. Come to me. Come now. God the Father shifted the blame to Jesus. He became our substitute. He took, he was treated on the cross as though he had committed our collective sin because the king loves us and laid down his rights and his life for us. We have such good news to preach, brethren. This is the story that we tell. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The king of kings came down on a rescue mission. Why? Because God the Father so loved you. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 Cannot forget the simple gospel message. 
Jesus walks it out a little bit further. He says, verse 29, take my yoke. Now, some of you are like, what? Wait a minute. You got to be yoking. I mean, first, thank you. Thank you for that little murmur out there. <laughs> I don't know if I should laugh at that one. Anyway, this has got to be a yoke. You, you gave me a little ammunition. Now I'm going with it. What? I thought you were talking about things being off of our shoulders. And in the ancient world, you guys all probably have heard that a yoke was something that placed two animals together to basically till a field. And they would, it was like a wooden apparatus and they would uh, attach the, the animals together basically at the shoulders and they would go on, you know, doing work in a field. And Jesus says, if you look closely at verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Now, a yoke was traditionally a symbol of oppressive power to be under the burden of a wicked king or etc. as we've talked about. But in the ancient world, it was also a symbol of discipleship. And here's how it worked. It was like being yoked up with your teacher or your leader so that wherever he went, you would go with him. It was a picture of discipleship. And Jesus talks about my yoke. I want you to take my yoke upon you. And we all are familiar with the verse that says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? We can't, we're not gonna be moving in the same direction. So you need to, if you're considering being married, you need to marry a believer. So you're going in the same direction. Well, here's the picture of taking Jesus's yoke. You're moving now in his direction. You're following him. You're becoming a disciple. And further, you're learning from him, which is the great commission. Teach them everything that I commanded you. Teach them to obey. The more you learn from Jesus, the more you put on his yoke and you learn from him, the more free you will become. Notice what Jesus said, says about himself. Learn from me for I am what? Gentle. I'm not oppressive. I'm not trying to beat you down. And humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. You will find, if you accept this invitation, a deep soul rest. You see, yes, I love the image of a hammock and swaying in the gentle breeze with a, a nice little iced tea with maybe even a little umbrella coming out of my drink. I like an easy chair. I like a soft place to lay down. I enjoy naps. Can I get a witness? <laughs> However, as much as those things are nice, bubble bath, whatever you want to imagine right now, Jesus is talking about a deep soul rest. He's talking about taking burdens off of your soul. He's talking about you being right with God. The biggest burden that we carry, whether people want to admit it or not, is the weight of our sin and guilt. And Jesus says, you come, here's what you'll find. I'll welcome you. I'll be gentle. Our great, powerful king is humble in heart, as amazing as that is. And you will find rest for your soul. Notice what he says. For my yoke, the one I want you to exchange your yoke for mine, your religious legalism for mine, your performance for mine, your self-reliance for my yoke. My yoke is easy, 30. My load 
My burden is light. Now, if I were to send a survey out to the church body sitting here today, and I would ask you, I want the top three words that describe your walk with Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of you would say, light and easy. Just cruising along. Everything's good. Everything's light. Everything's easy. Now, most of you are laughing because you're like, nope, <laughs> that ain't it. You don't know what kind of week I've had. Burden. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Could I ask you? And I'm preaching to myself. Why? Why are you so weighed down? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Are you putting your hope in your performance instead of putting your hope in God? You relying on your own resources instead of relying on God? Are you trying to earn your way into heaven instead of trusting in Christ? Well, if you're doing that, then you'd probably say my walk is heavy and burdensome. But his commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5 tells us. So where's the disconnect? What's, what's going on in my heart that that wouldn't be the immediate thing I say? Have I missed the gospel of the kingdom? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put unnecessary yokes on your shoulders Christ doesn't want them there. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Those are not my words. Those are his. Lord, I put in my notes, it's your work, your yoke. Teach me how to trust you. Teach me how to love you with everything that I am. Teach me kingdom truth. O'Donnell puts it this way. Christ's teachings bring rest. Rest comes from laboring when you're doing the right stuff for Christ, right? Rest comes from obedience. Rest comes in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Rest comes from God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what O'Donnell's saying. He's, he's saying this is not about stopping everything that you're doing. This is learning a new way to live. It's very important that you get this. This is learning a new way for soul rest. This is learning a new way to lean into your Lord, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Thank you for the amen. This is a new way to learn that life is not dependent on your power. For his power is perfected in what? Weakness. What? Oh, that goes against the American way. Yes, it does. But that is the kingdom way. The more reliant I become, the more free. The more I lean into Jesus, the more he lightens my burdens. Oh, God, help, help me to trust in you, to find soul rest, to make the equipment that you've given me for living. I want you to think... And maybe you can just close your eyes and just take a moment here to meditate on God's word. I want you to think about the armor of God, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of these metaphors in the Bible, that's, this is another way to say the same thing. His yoke is an endowment from heaven. It's God's power. Yes, first and foremost for salvation, but also 
to live the life he's called us to live. I want you to just take a moment, maybe with just your heart bowed before the Lord, and and just ask a simple question. Is this the Christ that you know? Have you come to him for soul rest? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in him and him alone for your salvation? For some of you hearing the sound of my voice, maybe watching via live stream, you've never done that before. You've never truly met the God of the Bible in Jesus Christ and life's been heavy for you and maybe this is the moment where you would just say something this simple yet profound. Jesus, I come to you as you have revealed yourself in the Bible. I repent of my sin, of self-reliance, pride, and anything else that might get in there, even my own self-image or whatever it may be, just just tell him. Thank you for coming on that rescue mission. Thank you that though you're the king of glory, you came and humbled yourself. Thank you that you entered into my pain and took my burdens at the cross, the burden of my sin, the burden of the wrath of God. Thank you for rising from the dead and defeating that terrible enemy death that's a result of my sin. I trust you right now. Be my king, be my God, be my savior. Teach me to put on your yoke and follow you all the days of my life. Teach me what rest is really about. If you're a believer and there's no doubt about where you're at in Christ, but maybe the load has just been heavy. You know, the Bible says that God daily bears our burdens and he wants even the burdens of the believer, even now, whatever they may be, would you give them afresh to him? He wants them. Amazing as it is, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Take a moment. Give it to him. Prepare your heart for the Lord's table. We're gonna remember his great sacrifice for us, his triumphant resurrection at the Lord's table. But just take a moment. Meditate on God's goodness, his word, his truth. Let it sink down deep in your soul. Let it be healing and refreshing. Thank you, Lord. You're so good to us, and we're just grateful for every blessing we find in Christ. Amen.